to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There is seemingly nothing in our society today that has not become politicized, from what bathrooms we use to the soda we drink to the food we eat. Sometimes it feels as if common sense and good judgment have gone out the window. We forget that there are some absolutes, that there are some facts that are irrefutable. Sometimes to ignore this is to do irreparable damage. One of the areas that this is clearly true is with respect to the environment. The politics of the environment are a prime example. Where once protecting the natural environment was a conservative value. Today, though, conservatives attacking those who seek to protect the environment has become an applause line. On the other hand, for environmental activists, their extreme views and their sometimes disregard for business and property rights has helped push the reaction on the other side. In short, there's plenty of blame to go around. What we do about it is the subject of a new book by my guest, Frederick Rich. He's an eminent international corporate attorney and an environmental leader, and he's the author of a new book entitled Getting to Green, Saving Nature, a Bipartisan Solution. Frederick Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. When we look back on it and just go back even as far as the 70s and 80s, that there was a time when clean water or clean air was not something that was a partisan issue. Well, yeah, actually, uh, Jeff, it's only in the last 20 to 25 years that it has become a partisan issue. So, you know, the current state of play uh, is uh, is temporary and, in my view, aberrational. I mean, in the if you go right back to the late 19th century, uh, uh, you, you had terrific conservative leadership on protection of natural resources. We, of course, had Teddy Roosevelt, a uh, great Republican uh, president, probably the greatest conservationist president we ever had. And then, you know, in the 70s and 80s, this is not ancient history. Uh, uh, every, every one of the laws that now make up the framework of our federal environmental laws was passed on a wholly bipartisan basis. Uh, 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 almost every one of those laws had unanimous support from Republicans uh, in the in the Senate, and and it was really in ninety ninety four that it all started to fall apart. And what was the tipping point? And what do we learn by going back to look at the point where that changed? Well, that's an interesting question, uh, Jeff, because you know you mentioned uh, in your opening remarks blame and. Uh, th- uh, I'm not interested in a blame game, but I am interested in figuring out what went wrong because it is relevant to figuring out how to fix it. Uh, and it's a very complicated question, but a, a couple highlights. I mean, yes, we had the rise uh, in the 90s of you know so-called movement conservatism, uh, which had a very kind of fundamentalist uh, view of economics, often called market fundamentalism, where you know anything that uh, uh, created incremental cost to business was bad, or you know all regulation was quasi-socialistic. Uh, it included a very extreme view of, of 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 property rights, which was really out of step with long American tradition. Uh, but, you know, you can't, and, and, and then, of course, you know, we had the, the mobilization of uh, ideological and industry money, you know, the Koch brothers, and we had the rise of, uh, you know, hyperpartisan media. But we, we cannot, you know, it, we can't blame it all on, on this shift to the right, uh, on the right. You know, there was a corresponding uh, shift to the left uh, uh, with the Green Movement, and, and also, frankly, the Green Movement not reconfiguring itself for success as time went on and you know uh, what do i mean by that i mean you know i mean that uh, 
there are uh, forces in the, in the green movement that still still uh, think that economic uh, growth uh, is the enemy, that uh, business is the enemy. One of the you know most popular environmental books of the last two years was Naomi Klein's book, which basically said that you know we capitalism was inconsistent with the survival of the planet. So you know the, the, these these views, when they're articulated uh, by Greens, you know get the the ire of the right up. And most importantly, Jeff, I think the green movement failed to uh, kind of respond to the demographic shifts. You know, we are an aging, white, rural, you know, upper middle class movement. And the country, 50% of, uh, you know, our fellow citizens live in cities. By 2015, 50% will be non-white. We have to reconfigure the, the movement to make it relevant uh, to the new complexion, a new face of America. And how do we begin to do that? What does the environmental movement have to do to make it relevant to the diversity and the reality of life in the 21st century? Well, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, some of it is just superficial, changing, you know, how we talk and communicate. Uh, but but some of it is more fundamental. Uh, I, I mean, we we you know I talk a lot in the book, which which may seem strange for such a pragmatic book, but I talk about environmental philosophy and that kind of deeper question of you know why why save nature? And you know we've come out of a of a long tradition you know, dominated really by a wilderness ethic, right? That we what we're all about is saving unspoiled nature, saving wilderness, which is where people aren't. And I think to be politically successful, what we have to do is uh, start to address the places where people are. We can't write off cities. Uh, uh, environment is and needs to be seen as a matter of public uh, health. Uh, uh, and so we have to make ourselves you know, relevant to people, and, 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 and we have to, in fact, not be indifferent uh, to the needs and interests that people prioritize, which is, you know, their health, the education of their kids, their jobs. I mean, these are practical realities. And all too often, uh, we've appeared to be, uh, you know, indifferent to these things. There is no conflict between economy and environment. They are mutually codependent. We can't have one without the other. And we have to start, you know, talking and acting as if we really believe it. Ironically, one of the things that's happened is that there has been environmental protection almost built in to this movement that has taken place over this virtually the same period of time, this, this past 30, 40 years, as more and more Americans have moved to the cities, have moved to urban landscapes. It has had a, a arguably a positive effect in, on the environment in terms of preventing the kind of growth, the kind of suburban sprawl that we saw back in the 50s. Yes, but whether that can be sustained is a real question. I mean, the projected population increase uh, between now and 2050 is enormous, and really, the the you know what the face of the country will look like in in 2050 depends in large part on where those uh, new people go. And if we and and this is again, and I think maybe this is the point you're making, Jeff. If you care about uh, you know, conservation lands and, you know, ecologically powerful, uh, less developed lands, as we all have to. Uh, uh, it, it, interestingly, the, 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 the fate of those lands may depend on whether we can make dense cities livable and healthy. If we can, if we can put a great deal of that population growth into cities, 
uh, greater density at, at the same time that we have you know access to parks and uh, you know greening healthy cities it may be the thing that saves the the, the countryside and the wildlands for more intensive development in that regard, as you've touched on, public health becomes part of the environmental debate as well. I mean, not dissimilar to, to kind of the debates that we've seen, again, along partisan lines in a situation like Flint. Well, e- exactly. I mean, there's nothing partisan about <laughs> clean air and clean water. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon knew it. I mean, Richard Nixon was a very savvy guy. He said, look, these are issues that transcend class and they transcend party. Uh, and there's some, Jeff, you know, it's, it's easy to get discouraged, but there's some really terrific things happening around the country. There's a new group called the Moms Clean Air Force. It's, and it was, it was modeled on Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? Yeah. The view of these women is that, uh, you know, if you care about your kids and you care about your kids' future, you have to care about climate change, you have to care about air quality. Uh, and it's fascinating. It's a movement in which everyone is welcome from right and left. Uh, it's based on health. It's based on children. Uh, and uh, these women are becoming politically active, uh, and it's a movement that's grown throughout the country. So we've seen that when we can actually uh, uh, understand and talk about environmental issues as health issues, as issues that affect people, uh, we tend to, to be more politically powerful and successful. One of the other breakdowns in this debate is often the difference between symbols and reality. And you talk about it in the book, particularly as it relates to Keystone, something that became more symbolic than any kind of real environmental danger, especially given the, the political and economic reality of the oil business that happened while that debate was going on. Yeah, and, and Jeff, this is something you know, reasonable people can differ on this, but my, my perspective is that our political capital is too scarce uh, and too precious to, to waste on symbolic victories. And, you know, uh, uh, the problem is at the end of the day, uh, the, the dirty oil t- sands in Canada, which I wish, you know, had never been developed, they were developed, they are developed, uh, uh, permitting or not permitting Keystone wasn't going to change that. Uh, uh, you know, the actual contribution to global warming was what the New York Times called infinitesimal. And what did we do? We created a, a very difficult political problem for a, a, a friendly uh, president. We created a very powerful uh, cause uh, for uh, the right. Uh, uh, we, can, you know, we created a very divisive, unhelpful dialogue. And at the end, when we won, you know, a so-called victory, uh, even the president, in announcing his decision, uh, if you read carefully what he said, it, uh, it's uh, an implied criticism of the movement. He basically said, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is symbolic and I'm doing it uh, before I go to Paris uh, to kind of create a symbol that America is serious about climate change. But it really breaks my heart that we spent so much energy uh, and so much of our political capital on that as opposed to something that really would change the, the real world and address an environmental problem. Like, for example, uh, the you know, methane emissions from, from, from fracking, which you know, is something that actually both sides are now willing to work on if we come together. There is a solution uh, in terms of tight, you know, tighter regulation of fracking and control of wastewater that could uh, get the support of both right and left. Do we have to change the language or the context in terms of bringing bipartisan coalitions together? 
Uh, you know, both. Uh, absolutely both. You know, it's it's fascinating. I, I don't know how many of your listeners read the Pope's encyclical last year, but, uh, uh, you know, it was fascinating to see how beautifully he was able to frame climate change and environment as moral issues. And I don't mean, you know, religious issues. I mean, you know, even if you're a completely secular person, uh, as a matter of morality, uh, and, and uh, you know, we need to use more of the language of values and morality. Our, 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 you know, the half of the country that self-styles itself as conservative uh, uh, is, you know, is deeply invested uh, in values. Their, their view of politics is hugely informed by moral decision-making, which, after all, if you look at the history, is why conservatives uh, showed such leadership on environmental issues, because they saw it as essentially a, a moral matter. You know, what, what, what intergenerational equity, what, you know, how do you uh, spend current resources and how do you take account of the impact on future generations is something that conservative writers and thinkers have talked about for centuries. So I think we, yes, we have to be based in good science. We have to use the language of science. We can't, you know, we can't lose that anchor, but we can do a much better job of, of, of framing our issues and outcomes in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that, uh, to which, you know, our, our countrymen on the right will be more sympathetic. And how does this happen within the framework of the discussion about climate change, which somehow seems to be at the center of all of this. Yeah. Jeff, what it requires is leadership from the right. Okay. With all due respect to Al Gore, you know, he is not going to change the minds um, of our fellow citizens, you know, who are in a very bad place in, in terms of their view on the climate change issue. But they will respond. And uh, there's a lot of uh, research and, and history that shows this. Uh, to leadership on the right, you know, we, we are capable of major political realignments in this country. It happens all the time. You know, views shift. Look at what happened on marriage equality. Mm -hmm. They tend to come to, you know, tipping points, and then the public view shifts. We are seeing leadership on the right. There's a fantastic guy, Bob Inglis. He was a six-term Tea Party Republican congressman from, from South Carolina. He went on a trip to Antarctica with the world's best climate scientists. And this man came back to his district in South Carolina and said, people, we've got this one wrong. This is a real problem. And my moral compass, you know, my values tell me I must act. I have to do something about this. And what's interesting is that, yes, he was primaried from the right, and he lost his seat. That's the bad news. The good news is this man started an organization called Republic N. He supports a revenue-neutral uh, carbon tax. He speaks all over uh, evangelical churches in the South, conservative colleges, uh, and he is changing the dialogue. And there are people like Bob Inglis uh, all over the country. There are eight to 12 Republican senators willing to, ready to take the leap on climate change if they do it together. We saw 11 uh, GOP congressmen uh, 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 sponsor a resolution on climate change uh, the week before the Pope's visit. There are a lot of signs that, uh, 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 that, that we're going to see leadership from the right, which will result in the abandonment of, of what really was a political tactic to, um, you know, uh, energize uh, the far-right base. But it's not a tactic that has been successful politically overall for the Republican Party. Uh, you know, whatever value it has to, to, to sort of mobilize the far-right base uh, is offset 
um, by the way it uh, you know drives away swing in moderate voters. You know, 61% of non-Tea Party Republicans, 61%, you know, acknowledge that climate change is real and that it is a you know human-caused problem in part for which there is a human solution. That 61% is pretty close to the 67%. Uh, which is the statistic for the country as a whole. What is the responsibility and the role of big business in all of this? Well, that is a very complex question, and what I advocate in the book is that we have to be much more nuanced in our dealings with business. Of course, business, you know, the, the job of the environmental movement is to call out uh, business when they engage in reckless and irresponsible behavior. So we're, there's always going to be a built-in antagonism between the environmental movement and business. On the other hand, um, big business is the you know the single largest actor mm -hmm. in the environmental realm, and you know changing their behavior uh, is 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 one of the things that the movement can do to affect actual change. I was you know when the, uh, 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 Francis Beinecke came in as the new leader of the. Uh, NRDC, a big environmental NGO, was fascinating. She got on the plane and flew to Bentonville, Arkansas, and sat down with Walmart. <laughs> you know, talk about a company that would have been viewed as the enemy. Uh, but what came out of that engagement? Tremendous number of positive changes in Walmart's practices. So I think we need to be more nuanced. We need to work and engage with business to change their practices where we can make progress, and yet we must remain free to, 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 to call out business uh, when it's irresponsible. Of course, one of the things that business is finding is that it's good business practice and good marketing practice to do the right thing environmentally. Absolutely, and not just marketing, Jeff. I have to be—I uh, have to be honest with you. I, you know, this so-called greenwashing. There's too much of this. You know, putting a green patina on things. And look, a lot of it is not authentic. And and Americans have a very, uh, very accurate BS meter. And you know, so we have to be very cautious about that. But but there's a lot that business is doing which is motivated not by marketing and PR but by dollars and cents, which is what really, at the end of the day, motivates business. I mean, they depend on resources. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, you know, I'm no fan of Coca-Cola, but this is just a, an example. You know, Coke bottling operations all over the world have decided that they had to start investing in watershed conservation because without it, they wouldn't have enough clean water to make their product, right? So they had had this free ride uh, of getting the benefit of these ecosystem services, right? That free ride is now over. It requires them to invest in nature. That's a dollar and cents thing, but they're doing fantastic conservation work in these watersheds. So this is the sort of thing we're going to start to see. Business is going to wake up and understand that a sustainable environment is the foundation of their operation, and they have to invest in it. What impact are you seeing or do you see potentially from this current election cycle in terms of environmental issues? Uh, you know, it's such a crazy cycle. Um, uh, I think we have to be careful about not reading much into it. But here, here's one thing that I do read into it. Um, you, you know, politics changes in sort of seismic shifts. I, I talked earlier about the tipping point mm -hmm. with, with marriage equality. Um, the drama and trauma being experienced by the Republican Party in this cycle um, is almost certainly, in my view, going to open the door for 
some real rethinking. Karl Rove said in 2008, uh, as early as 2008, that Republicans needed to succeed politically to have a, uh, you know, a, a green agenda that reflected their, their values. So I think that when, if the, to the extent that the party tries to put itself back together and figure out how to configure itself for success, I think we have an opportunity uh, in this cycle after, you know, after, um, uh, after the election uh, to, uh, to have the Republicans jettison a lot of this anti-green sentiment that uh, uh, ha- they've held for the last couple decades. You've talked about leaders emerging on the right, leaders emerging on the Republican side who get these issues and understand some of the fundamentals. Are there leaders emerging on the in the extreme environmental movement who understand that there has been too much extremism and too much symbolism and not enough focus on on reality? Yes. Well, you know, here's the thing. I I, I try to be very careful in the book because there are. Um, you know, it's easy to call out these extremist groups, the Earth Firsts, or you know what some of what Bill McKibben has done with 350.org and the views that were taken on Keystone and so forth. But the reality is that day in and day out, there are environmental groups around the country. Often, they're regional and state and local, not national who are doing exactly what I advocate in this book. You know, a great example, and I know you have it up there in Napa, is the land trust movement. Mm-hmm. You know, land trusts, uh, there are 1,700 land trusts in this country, in every state. They're deeply local. They're embedded in their communities. They're almost completely bipartisan. Um, and, and uh, you know, th- th- I think we're going to see leadership emerge from the bottom up on this, not from the top down. One of the things that we haven't touched on is the the larger global framework and the international environmental efforts and how that all dovetails with what we've been talking about domestically. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I mean, Paris Agreement happened. Uh, But uh, 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 if you really look hard at it, Jeff, uh, uh, it, too, comes back to U.S. politics. The, the, The Paris Agreement really depends on the U.S. in particular being able to meet its commitments. If the U.S. can't meet its commitments, it's unlikely that the Paris framework will survive. And the, the, the ability of the U.S. to meet its commitments all comes back to politics. We have, uh, we have to pay uh, money to the emerging market. Congress refused to appropriate the money. The president found a workaround for that uh, this, this time around, but uh, query whether he will next year. Uh, we obviously uh, were not in a position to get any kind of congressionally mandated uh, way to uh, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So the president did it by regulation and the Clean Power Plan. Uh, do you know that within 12 hours of the Clean Power Plan uh, being published in the Federal Register, it became the most heavily contested federal regulation ever? It's under attack in Congress. It's under attack in the, in the courts. Uh, so, so it all comes back to politics. I mean, the 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 international uh, agreements uh, 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 depend on the U.S. and the U.S. depends on 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 solving this toxic politics that we're mired in. And finally, what about environmental concerns? What are you seeing in the developing world and the way those nations are addressing these issues? Well, it, you know, it's not really the topic of the book, Jeff, right. but it's impossible to generalize. I mean, there is some incredibly hopeful things happening 
throughout the developing world, the, the role played by many U.S. NGOs like the Nature Conservancy in, uh, you know, in, in, in helping stem the loss of tropical rainforests, working on coral reefs, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, let's just remember one thing, though, that you know, we have to find a way that we can both stem environmental degradation in the developing world and meet their, their uh, objectives to alleviate poverty. Um, there is no way that we will succeed if the if the cost uh, of the environmental agenda is to keep the greater part of, of these populations living in terrible poverty. It's not going to happen. It's not right. It's not morally right, and it's not politically practical. So, you know, we need to be we need to be sensitive to to both their aspirations for economic growth. Uh, uh, and uh, and and the 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 the, the planet's need, uh, you know, which is really collective, uh, to 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 accomplish things like the the stemming the loss of tropical rainforest. Frederick Rich, his book is Getting to Green: Saving Nature, a Bipartisan Solution. Frederick, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you.